Or is that not your shopping day? No, that's not our shopping day. That's our look for a therapist for Michaela Day. Oh, yeah. We might be doing a group look for therapist day with everybody soon. It looks like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no, Mm -hmm. that is literally just help Michaela find a therapist because I am incapable of doing so myself. That's, yeah. Valid. I also need to get back into therapy, and I need to call to schedule an appointment with the knee doctor, and I'm waiting for my dentist to call me back. I just, like, I'm falling the fuck apart, dude, and from the inside out. I mean, same. Like, gotta get my meds changed, and I'm not looking forward to this at all. No, it's not fun. I can imagine, especially since I've been on this one for so long, so. Yeah. If you need support, I'm here. I'm going to need that support. I'm here. You I'm know gonna that. I'm going to need it. My house is like a quiet, chill place most of the time. Uh, most so of the time. That's going to be that's gonna be a hoot and a holler of a lot of fun. Whole hoot and nanny. A whole hoot and nanny. Exactly. It's going to be great. Yay. Yay. Well, hello, all you vicious little parasites, and welcome back for another episode of Creeptology, the podcast. I'm the first of your hosts, Salem, and this week I identify as a rickety bag of bones. <laughs> Mmm, nice. I identify as those really crispy, flimsy Cheetos that you can make a skeleton out of. Yes. Like Cheeto puff skeleton pieces? Yes. But they turn to dust so easily. Yeah. Yeah. That's also kind of like me. I'm just like a bag full of like bones that you could shake up like a maraca because that's pretty much what my body is, is a skin sack full of bones that shakes up like a maraca. But yeah, today with me, as always, is my favorite neurodivergent nightmare, Michaela. That's a good one. Right? That was from Emily. Emily submitted that one to me, my lovely sister. I love that. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. But how have you been doing? (laughs) (laughs) I have been okay. That is relatable fucking content if I've ever heard it. Just okay. Okay. Like, not even with the A-Y at the end, just, like, okay, like, existing. Yes. <laughs> Bare minimum. Hanging in there, getting through it. Yeah. Deep size. Yeah. You know, I had bronchitis for fucking two mm-hmm. and a half weeks mm-hmm. and was quitting nicotine at the same time and starting college at the same time. And now my son might be getting sick again. That's fine. I think mom's getting sick again, so... Yep. I'm just hanging in there, man. I'm just hanging in there. Yeah. Need a med change. By a noose around my neck. Um, (laughs) Well, today's spine-chilling tale is one that would be found in the depths of my personal nightmares. It's a story of a teenage infatuation turned quickly to obsession, where psychological torture is considered the perfect afternoon entertainment. This is the story of Daniel LaPlante. My sources for this episode come from author Joe Turner's website, joeturnerbooks.com, where he's writing a tell-all book about Daniel with first-hand accounts from the people involved and from Daniel's family, a story off of thecinemaholic.com titled Where is Daniel LaPlante Now?, and a report from CBS News Boston about his recent court trial that happened in 2019. This episode, by the way, is a very brutal episode at times, and there are mentions of sexual assault, rape, and violence against children. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Hardcore. Yes. If this is not your cup of tea, Then skip it and join us for tea next week. Yes. Next week will not be this triggering. Next week is going to be a house full of fun. More mellow, for sure. Much more mellow. 
The story of Daniel LaPlante could be called many things. Horrific, traumatic, and terrifying are the first few that pop into my head. All around, it's just like a downright bizarre case, though. LaPlante was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. From the beginning of his life, Daniel didn't have it easy. His childhood was extremely traumatic and riddled with psychological, physical, and sexual abuse, mostly from the hands of his father, which is not uncommon, unfortunately. The abuse affected every aspect of Daniel's life. He struggled in school socially and academically, and this could also be in part attributed to his dyslexia and hyperactivity diagnosis that he received throughout his childhood. We don't know anything about that. No. What's being hyperactive? What is ADHD? My neurodivergent nightmare? Tell me. Tell me all about it. The thing that keeps me from doing the things. Literally all the time. Or all the things in a one-hour span. I either do all of the things really quickly or none of the things for, like, weeks. Yeah, same. Love it. (laughs) Love it so much. LaPlante was a social outcast in school who didn't have many friends and was often referred to by his classmates as creepy and weird. In his early teen years, his teachers noticed a lack of effort from Daniel regarding his appearance, hygiene, and self-improvement, so they referred him to a psychiatrist. So, luckily, there were some adults in his life that were looking out for him. You know, maybe this kid's not doing so great and someone should help him. This could have been the turning point for Daniel, getting the help that he desperately needed had it not been for the horrific events that were to take place. The professional relationship between Daniel and his psychiatrist quickly took a dark turn when the psychiatrist decided to make sexual advances towards Daniel. For the next year, Daniel would continue to be sexually abused by his psychiatrist during their sessions, leaving a long-lasting impact on LaPlante's psyche. Don't tell me this when I'm looking for a therapist. I mean, come on, guy. I'm sorry. This is just... Part of, part of the story. Uh, continue, continue. Many trusted adults in Daniel's life saw his weaknesses and decided that he was an easy target to prey on. With no one to turn to, Daniel instead took to a life of crime, which eventually would lead to the triple murder, which he got arrested for. Although, Daniel became notorious not for the murders in which he committed, but for the spine-chilling tales that came to light afterwards. Hmm. So he committed three murders. He committed three murders, but that's not where his infamy comes from. But he's technically a serial killer, though. Um, No, because it was one mass slaying. Ah, He committed three murders at once, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But from a young age, Daniel already had some brief run-ins with the law, and by the time he was a teenager, he'd established himself as a small-time thief. He would spend his evenings roaming Townsend, breaking and entering into people's homes, and stealing their valuables. Eventually, Daniel got bored with stealing on its own, so he started down his path of psychological torment for fun. Starting at age 15, along with stealing items from these homes, he would also leave stuff behind. Daniel got entertainment from moving things around the homes— Not enough to be noticeable immediately, but just enough for the residents to realize that someone had been in their home while they were gone. That would drive me up the wall. You know how afraid I am of being, like, watched in my home and, like, knowing that someone was in my house? I wouldn't be able to sleep. Like, I would not be able to sleep ever, ever again. You don't sleep as it is. Yeah, I have insomnia, so I, like, the four hours of sleep I get would be reduced to, like, 40 minutes of sleep, maybe. I almost wish I hadn't saw me. I sleep too much. I've been sleeping too much. (laughs) 
Well, it didn't take long for LaPlante to begin breaking into people's homes with the sole purpose of playing mind games with them. 1986 is the year where Danny's fun and games, so to speak, took an extremely dark turn and he committed the atrocious acts that caused his infamy. Through unknown circumstances, Daniel LaPlante attained the phone number of a local family. People speculate that he got it while burglarizing the home, but LaPlante would go on to tell the girls that he had gotten their number from a mutual friend at school. The home belonged to the Bowen family, a father Frank and his two daughters, Tina and Karen. Daniel called the residents and started conversing with the girls. He described himself as a handsome, well-educated, blonde athletic boy who lived in their area. After several phone calls, 15-year-old Tina and Danny became rather acquainted with each other and had agreed to meet up one evening for a date. Well, when Danny arrived at the Bowens' doorstep for their date, Tina was shocked to see that LaPlante was almost the exact opposite of how he described himself. Are we surprised? No. No, not really. That's just early day catfishing is what that is. Yeah. Danny was like an OG catfish before that term was a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of being the tall, blonde, handsome jock he told Tina he was, in the Bowen's doorstep instead stood Danny, a five-foot-eight disheveled kid who was stick-thin with long, black, greasy hair, a face riddled with severe acne, and a hollow emptiness in his eyes. Despite his unkempt appearance, Tina followed through with their date plans and allowed Danny to take her to the county fair. Wow. I know. I would not have. That is a stand-up girl right there. I absolutely would not have. No. I'm like, no, you lied to me. What the hell? Up to this point, like, why would I let you take me anywhere? Yeah. You could take your ass home. Like, go away. Well, over the course of their date, LaPlante learned about the recent passing of Tina and Karen's mother to cancer, and he developed a morbid curiosity about it almost instantly and continually asked Tina questions the rest of the time about her mother's death. That's not a good date topic. It's probably one of the worst uh, date topics. Yeah, that is, like, not a good date topic at all. Oh, especially because he continually asked her how her mom felt in her final moments of death and if she suffered as she was dying. Unsurprisingly, Tina came up with an excuse to leave the date early after only an hour, and she never willingly saw Daniel again after their date. Good. Keyword, willingly. Willingly. In an evening fueled by childhood boredom and naivety, Tina and her younger sister Karen used a Ouija board to try and contact their dead mother's spirit, not thinking that anything would come from it. Well, to their surprise, the same evening, the girls heard rhythmic tapping on their bedroom wall as they were trying to sleep. The girls, thinking that they had reached the spirit of their mother, began asking questions to which the tapping behind the wall would respond. What started off as a welcomed anomaly turned into an annoyance pretty fast as it continuously disturbed the girls' sleep at night. The next few months after the first response from behind the walls, activity around the house became more frequent and more intense. Toilets would be left used. TV channels would change after you left a room. Items around the house would move or just flat out disappear. Stacks of papers would knock themselves over. And furniture would be moved from one side of the room to the other. Tina and Karen soon believed that they were being haunted by a malevolent demon instead of the friendly ghost of their mother. Frank Bowen insisted that the girls were responsible for the odd goings-on around the house and that they were just acting out in reaction to their mother's recent passing. You know, just kids being kids. Something tells me that this is not a ghost story. (sighs) 
In January 1987, Tina and Karen once again heard the knocking that they had grown accustomed to. But this time, instead of coming through the walls, the knocking was coming from the basement. Quick question. How long had the knocking been going on? This is 1987, so this is a year after... After the date. Uh Uh-huh. So this knocking has been going on for about a year. Yes. Wow. Okay, continue. The two girls made their way into the basement towards the noise, but not before arming themselves with a kitchen knife. Smart. At at least if they're going to investigate, they arm themselves first. These young girls are smarter than a lot of adults I read about in these types of situations. Yes. So I appreciate that. Arming yourself is a good idea. Really, really good idea. Once they arrived at the bottom of the stairs, the sisters were greeted by an extremely eerie sight. In blood red, written on the basement wall, was a message that read, I'm in your room. Come find me. The girls, without a moment of hesitation, fled the house and ran to the neighbors for help. They waited there until their father returned home and they could tell him what they had witnessed. Frank once again believed this defacement was caused by the girls acting out due to the turmoil brought on by their mother's death and ordered the girls to go to counseling to work through the trauma. I mean, therapy is always a good option. Therapy is very helpful, but listen to your kids sometimes, man. Like... He's not the worst parent in the world, and I understand his train of thought where, you know, their mother just passed away, and then a bunch of stuff starts happening around the house. Kids do act out and try and process grief in strange ways sometimes. And if he's a single father at this point, I'm sure he's dealing with his own grief and trying to support two kids, you know? Exactly. I get that he probably doesn't have the mental capacity for this, but, like, come on, man. (laughs) Listen to your kids. Listen to your kids. They're teenagers. It's not even like they're kids' kids. Well, yeah, one of them's 15 and the other, I think, was nine. Yeah, so I'm like, I don't think they'd be making this kind of stuff up. All of this would have been over way sooner had Frank just listened to his fucking kids the first time. Activity around the house died down for a bit after the initial incident with the writing in the basement. Until several weeks later, when a similar event took place, but ended in a strange and unsettling turn of events. The sisters heard the knocking again, but this time it was coming through Tina's bedroom wall. When the girls entered her room, another blood-red message was strewn across it, saying, I'm back. Find me if you can. Once again, the girls ran to the aid of their neighbor, terrified from the events that had taken place, and once again... Their father did not believe them when they had told him what they had witnessed. I mean, okay, if you dismiss it the first time, that's one thing. But the second time? Come on, dude. Can we at least, like, shout out to how awesome this neighbor is for just being like, yo, come here if you need a safe place. Literally, thank God for, like, good neighbors. Yeah, I don't want to think of what would have happened if they would have been just left there alone with nowhere to go. from the story, it sounds like they were, like, latchkey kids. I'm sure they were. Of a single parent who was trying to support the family. So it was either they run to the neighbors or go where. Yeah, exactly. The unsung hero of this fic is... The neighbor. The neighbor. The neighbor, absolutely. 
Frank Bowen went back into their family home and saw that the home was in a greater state of disarray than either the girls or neighbor had described to him when they were all joined together elsewhere. So eventually, he started believing that maybe some weird things were going on around the house and that maybe it wasn't his daughter's fault. Maybe. When Frank entered Tina's room, another message had joined the prior one on the wall. This one read, Marry me. And on the other side of the room, Frank was greeted by the sight of a young boy wearing a blonde wig along with makeup and clothing of his deceased wife. The young boy was brandishing a hatchet in his hands. Frank rushed the boy in a failed attempt to wrestle the hatchet away from him. And instead, with seemingly little effort, the boy slipped away and disappeared. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Just like the thought of this story creeps me out so fucking much, dude. He appeared wearing a blonde wig and the mother's clothes. Yes. Tina and Karen's mother, who had recently passed from cancer, he had adorned himself in her clothing and makeup and a blonde wig. They think it was in an attempt to scare the girls into believing that he is the spirit of their mother and he was going to come out and scare them at night because he gets off on psychological torture and likes to scare people and torment them for fun. None of this sounds fun. None of this is fun. No. No. And then he disappears? Yeah. So Frank went into the room to try to wrestle it away. The boy slipped through his arms and seemingly vanished not a good sign. No. That's not a good Probably sign. Probably the worst sign. Oh, God. When the police arrived at the residence to investigate, they were quick to realize how the events had taken place. Luckily. Police actually doing something. Yeah, I was like, police are doing police work? Yeah. What? Fucking crazy. Behind a cupboard in Tina's bedroom, the officers had found a crawl space built into the wall, and curled up in that crawl space was Daniel LaPlante. Officers immediately removed Daniel from the crawl space and placed him under arrest. Thank God. The investigation that followed uncovered some horrific truths. Daniel had been living in the walls of the family home for upwards of a year, and he had tunneled pathways through the walls of the house and dotted peepholes along the walls to observe Tina from no matter what room she was in. Some of the hiding spots that Daniel used to hide in in the walls weren't much bigger than six inches wide. He was real skinny. Real skinny, very much adamant about spying on this family, on Tina specifically, because he became obsessed with her after their first initial date, and especially when she had mentioned her mother's death, because he saw that as an in to be able to torment. And think, this is a 15-year-old kid. Yeah! Like, this kid is 15, 16 years old at this point. Oh, my God. Well, he managed to work out their schedules and avoided being disruptive when their father was home. Danny pretended to be the ghost of the girl's dead mother in order to torment them, writing blood-like messages with ketchup on the walls. There was evidence showing that his intentions were soon about to turn murderous. How did they not smell the ketchup, though? I don't know. When you see writing on your walls that you assume is blood, are you going to go up and smell it? No, but ketchup has a very pungent smell. It's also, like, 
a 15-year-old and a 9-year-old who think they're being uh, haunted haunted by a demon. That's fair. That's fair. After his arrest, Daniel remained in a juvenile detention facility until October 1987 when he was released on bail and began burglarizing again almost immediately. He went to juvie for a few months, was released on bail, and then went straight back into his life of crime. Shows you how good the justice system is. Yeah. Was. Is. Is. Still is. It has not changed. That we need a new fucking prison system. We need something, huh? Maybe don't lock people up and isolate them and expect that to change their behavior that oftentimes is caused from social isolation. I don't know. Crazy thought. (laughs) Maybe actually give people uh therapy and the mental help they need and coping skills and tools to get better and not just throw them in prison but anyway continue during one of daniel's break-ins he became in possession of two handguns (laughs) a short two months later on december 1st 1987 16 year old daniel snuck into the home belonging to the gustafson family He was greeted then by Priscilla and the two children, William and Abigail. Once inside the home, he proceeded to rape 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson at gunpoint before shooting her in the head, effectively killing her and the child that she was expecting. After Daniel had felt that the biggest threat had been eliminated, he took 5-year-old William to the upstairs bathroom where he drowned him in the bathtub and then took 8-year-old Abigail to the downstairs bathroom to suffer a similar fate. The plant quickly became linked to the Gustafson murders, and a manhunt ensued to catch him. Thankfully, it didn't take long for Daniel to be captured and charged for the triple murders that he had committed. He was tried as an adult and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. But in this country, they recently passed a law that any child who's convicted with a life sentence has an opportunity to be retried or to appeal their case because the human brain and especially the decision-making part of your brain, which is like your frontal lobe, isn't fully developed till adulthood. So they're saying that they cannot, in conscience, make these children serve a life sentence in prison for crimes they committed when the decision-making part of their brain wasn't fully developed. I mean, that's fair. That is fair. But. Yeah, big fucking but. Like, (laughs) homeboy murdered three people and lived in someone's walls just to torment them. He has a life history of committing crime and violent crime at that. That led to a triple homicide at the age of 16. This boy was 16? Yeah. He was 16 when he committed the triple homicide and rape against the Gustafsons. Like I said, that's that's fair that you want to give them a chance, these kids, but, like, come on. Some Within people reason. don't deserve a second chance. Correct. Some people just don't deserve a second chance. In 2019, Daniel LaPlante recently tried appealing his case to the court to shorten his sentence. But, thank fuck, 
the court ruled against it, saying that his crimes were too violent and they don't feel like he is reformed and that he still shows no remorse for the lives that he took or the crimes that he committed. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, so he's still currently being held in a Massachusetts prison, but he is eligible for parole in 10 years. In 2032, he'll be eligible for parole and will have a chance at regaining life in society. There's so much nope about this. The whole story is just a big bunch of nope. Nope. Like, fuck all of that. Yeah. And I mean, I don't necessarily have the the fears that you have of, like, being watched and stuff in your home, but... Someone spying on you and living in your walls for a year. That's people under the stairs shit. The book that's being written by Joe Turner about the entire events is called The Boy in the Walls. It comes out later this year. And it's, yeah, a tell-all with interviews with Daniel LaPlante's family, with... Tina and, like, the Bowen family and how it affected them from I can only imagine. here on out. Because, obviously, that's going to cause some psychological damage. Yeah. And the interesting thing is when I was researching this case. So, this is one of those stories that parts of it have been greatly exaggerated as it's been told over time which happens with many stories. So even some of the facts that I found on this might not be entirely accurate. Mm -hmm. So when this book comes out, it might be a good read to get the full scope of details on what truly happened. I tried to get as much reliable information as possible, obviously, but yeah. See, I was expecting Tina and her family to be the murdered ones. Fortunately, unfortunately, they weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it still sucks that people were murdered, but... Tina was lucky. And because of the fact that he was 15 when he got arrested initially for stalking the Bowens and living in their home, a lot of those records were sealed for confidentiality because Mm. you can't release arrest records for minors unless it falls under, like, certain categories. And that wasn't a violent crime. It was a weird stalking case at that time and breaking and entering, but there wasn't a lot publicly released about it. So that part of his past wasn't even revealed until after he had committed the triple homicide, and then it brought the other story to light about the type of person that he was... Yes, some people are better left locked up. Yeah, I really hope that when he's eligible for parole, he does not get approved parole. I really hope so, too, because, uh, uh. Yeah, because in 2019, they were saying that he still has shown no remorse for the crimes that he committed. From 87 to 2019, and you haven't had enough time to feel sorry you're never going to feel sorry for what you did your brain was fully formed when you made those fucking decisions doesn't matter if they were fully formed or not making those decisions have formed some serious pathways in that brain that can't be unformed you know he had the roadmap laid out in front of him to become a serial killer every 
person in authority in his life taking advantage of him and coming from a very physically and mentally abusive situation, his dad roadmapped the Uh, fucking life of crime into his brain for him. Unfortunately, and it's all too easy just to keep going and follow that map. That's the unsettling tale of the boy in the walls, Mr. Daniel LaPlante. (laughs) It gave me the heebie-jeebies the whole time I was researching, dude. I'm going to be doing the twitchy thing for a while now because... Yeah, it's... Unsettling beyond belief. So unsettling. It just makes me think of people under the stairs now. I want to watch that movie, but it's just still, ugh. I found the Melon Head movie. You did? Okay. I did, kind of. Kind of. Yes and no. Okay. So, it's not really what you'd think of when you think movie. Okay. It is more of a student film. On YouTube is where I found it. It's the whole thing. It's called The Melon Heads. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2011, so I think I found the right one. It's about yeah. 50 minutes. Okay. Had a $1,000 budget. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre did that, but they made it good, so... Yeah, this movie was not directed by Toby Hooper. That's uh, all I'm okay, gonna that's, fucking that's say. Fair. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet because I've been waiting for you. Okay. But I did find it. There's also another Melonhead movie that oh. I found called like The Legends of the Melonheads, and that one came out. I think it's like 2013, 2014. Oh. That one looks like it has a little bit bigger of a budget, closer to like a Velocipaster budget of like gotcha. thirty thousand. Mm. Not so much of like thousand dollar pocket change and students running around with a shaky camera. Yeah, kind of like Evil Dead. Yeah. 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 But like you said, this this doesn't have Toby Hooper or Sam Raimi, so yeah. <laughs> But I did, I did find it. It's out there on YouTube if anyone is interested in watching. I am very interested in watching. We also hit 100 followers on our Instagram today. Woo! Woo! That sparked an idea that maybe once we hit 500 followers, we could do a giveaway. Ooh, okay. So, yeah, if you want to follow us on our socials, we have... Our Instagram, which is at Creeptology Podcast, or you can send us an email with any questions, topics, concerns, recommendations, any of that fun bullshit at creeptologypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for joining us, my favorite little parasites, and we will see you next two weeks. Two weeks from now? Yes. Two, two weeks. weeks from now.